It is time for your orientation for your new career as servant to me, the great Baron Munchausen. Ah, yes. Finally, to work with such an esteemed hero. That's indeed, indeed. You are all quite honored. Well, I have a question. It's highly unusual, but I suppose you could. Uh, what kind of adventures are we going to go on? I really need to know. Well, the first thing we're going to do is go to the Candy Kingdom to reclaim the Candy Crown for the Candy King. Oh, wow. Well, uh, maybe we can, like, bring back some candy for my family? They haven't eaten a lot recently. Haven't eaten? I don't understand what that means. Things have been really hard, you know. I have no clue what you're talking about. Anyways, the king of the Candy Kingdom has been usurped by rebellious candy minions, and it is our duty to restore him to his rightful position of authority amongst the candy people. Also, I owe him a favor. Oh, well, I suppose if you owe him a favor, then you have to. Exactly. I guess. And then after that, we're going to travel to Mars, where a cruel overlord has oppressed the Martian people for far too long, and it is our duty to help them out. Oh, well, I like this plan. Yes, that seems like it would be great for your reputation. Exactly. After we have rescued these poor Martians, they will shower us with glory and gratitude, and it will be marvelous for the legend of Baron Munchausen going forward. Well... I'm not sure about your morality here. You seem like you do some questionable things and some good things, but uh, I guess it all evens out. Absolutely! Yes, especially when we get paid. Paid? What What do you mean? You're my servants. You serve me. Hmm. We might have to discuss this. <laughs> Hello, fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Molkel. My pronouns are he and him, and I am here with my incomprehensible co-hosts. <laughs> my name is Cassidy. I go by they, them, for them, their pronouns, and I'm a person... <laughs> <laughs> really? Nice. <laughs> ...who can smell things from really far away oh is that a helpful skill it's more of a curse oh that makes sense actually but i can catch people in the act when they think they're alone and they're farting in their house <laughs> i guess that's valuable <laughs> i can use it for blackmail <laughs> because people are farting alone at home <laughs> yeah. you're gonna blackmail them with that <laughs> you would be surprised what people do to avoid embarrassment Fair enough. Sometimes it's called the brown mail. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. 
but it's a useful trick. What about you? Well, I'm Jack Olander. When it comes to pronouns, I'll take whatever whatever you have to spare. <laughs> Any old extra pronouns laying around? That's right. Just the ones you aren't using, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a hard person to keep track of. Cause when I'm when I'm walking into a room, I'll open the door, and sometimes I'll just I'll just come through in the wrong room. Oh yeah, I feel like I've seen that in that old documentary series Scooby Doo. Yes, actually, yes. Uh, I was uh, I was part of that. I was one of the stunt doubles for those scenes. Incredible. Yes, you're familiar with my work. I am. I'm a big fan, actually. Yeah. All right. Well, um, guys. This is an exciting day because we're going to be talking about a real whimsical fantasy classic today because we are discussing the 1988 film, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Yes, this was one of my favorite movies as a kid. I just loved the adventures and the fantasy and the Baron sticking it to the stuffy realists. (laughs) That's a good description of it. But uh, now I know more about what's going on behind the veil. (laughs) Oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Unfiltered chaos versus uncaring bureaucracy. (laughs) Well, so this film was, of course, directed by the iconic Terry Gilliam. It stars John Neville, Eric Idle, and Sarah Polly. And it is a wild ride that I can't wait to talk to you all about. But before we do that, I think Cass has a summary for this film, sculpted after years and years of studying. Right. In this movie, there's a pointless war going on. A city is being besieged, and the common people are caught in the middle of two opposing forces. When are we going to get back to having pointful wars? (laughs) Well, most wars are pointless, or they're just there to benefit the people in charge. And that's what's going on in this movie, too. That's right. And, uh... Turns out, the elected official, Horatio Jackson... Of a nameless European country. Yeah. uh, uh, He's the elected official of this one city that's... A walled city that's being besieged by the uh, Turks, as they're called in the movie. A named actual-life ethnic group. Yeah, it's unclear why they're fighting, but like later on in the movie you see the king of the Turks and Horatio having a meeting and they're just like planning out who's going to win this time. And they've been fighting back and forth and they just take turns who will win and who will lose. And it's totally arbitrary, but they get benefits when they win and they have to give some resources or seed something when they lose. It turns out that war, it never changes. Mm -hmm. Funny that. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the middle of all that, there's whimsy. Ooh, I love whimsy. Yeah. There's an acting company. Don't remember the name of it. Henry Salt and Son. 
Thank you, because that's the name of one of the characters. <laughs> Son? Henry Salt. Ah, yes, that makes more sense. Is it Henry or Harry? He's the... L Henry. He's the leader of the acting troupe, and he actually has a daughter named Sally. So, not a son. No. Now, we know she's not a son because she specifically goes around and crosses out son from the posters and writes in daughter. Yeah, and it's, not only is that fucked up, but then her dad tells her when she complains about it that it's more traditional to say son, he thinks it's more prestigious, and he he laments teaching her how to read. Yeah, funny how the excuse for why we shouldn't change things when it comes to gender roles is, it's just tradition. Tradition can't possibly be wrong. Right. Um, and this takes place in the late 1800s, I think. Uh, 1700s. Thank you. And uh, 18th century. Thank you. There you go. The so, late 18th century. <laughs> they are putting on a play of The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. And oh, I saw the movie version. <laughs> <laughs> and they're trying to put on the play, and then this old man comes in looking like the Baron and says they got it all wrong. And he's going to tell it like it really is. You didn't have the Baron sleep with nearly as many women as I actually slept with <laughs> me, the Baron. He tells a story about a wager he had with the King of the Turks and how he stole a bunch of money from him. Uh, uh, excuse me, won a bunch of money? on a, But kind of like hinged on a technicality. Don't agree to let somebody take away as much gold as the strongest man can carry unless you want to have a man who is ridiculously strong take all of your money. Yeah, the Baron has all of these uh, friends who help him. I mean, unpaid servants. And he calls them his servants. Uh, he just kind of orders them around and it's really unclear while they follow him. But they're also all like basically superheroes. Yeah. But they follow him, an aristocrat. Right. The way it should be? <laughs> Question mark? <laughs> he is a baron. He is charming. God, he's like, that is his superpower. And he's really dangerous. Incredibly yeah. Oh, yeah, dangerous. Yeah, that's true. He kills a lot of people with his sword. Um, he also has a magical horse who, like, come when he whistles and uh, can, like, survive any fall, it seems like. Yeah, hopefully the uh, horse who played him could also survive any fall because this movie was dangerous to make. Yeah. Like, in reality, <laughs> the, the actors were put in horrible peril. It's true. Even the child, Sally. Especially the child, Sally. I think she was nine when she played the part. Let's just say, she was close to a lot of explosions. She was in cold water for many hours. So it goes from a story he's recounting uh, to he and Sally actually going on an adventure to try to save the town. Which it turns out is actually also just part of his story, but also really happened in reality. Yeah, it's um, unclear if it was a story or not. It's a story within a story within a story, but also every one of those stories happened. Exactly. It was all just a fiction in reality. <laughs> exactly. He's kind of like a mythological figure, so he's got whimsy magic. So mm -hmm. if 
he describes something as happening, he can rewrite reality and have it has have it happen. For those of you who haven't seen the movie, the Baron can do things like fly a dirigible to the moon or be lifted up by a god while he is smaller and then grow to the same size as the god by the time he's pulled to his feet. Yeah. Like, he is smaller than the god. The god foists him up, and suddenly the Baron and all of his companions are the same size as the god. Baron's even a little bit taller. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's like his superpower is charm and whimsy, I guess. Yeah, I mean, mine too. And, uh, yeah, they go to the moon. He basically is going to go find all of his servants to deal with the Turk army. They go to the moon to find one. They go to the Vulcan forge in a volcano uh, where they meet Vulcan and Venus. They get swallowed by a sea monster where they find some of his other servants until they finally are shot out of the blowhole and make their way back to the town. Right. Now, Kaz, you forgot to mention his interactions with the King of the Moon, played by this amazing actor who ever only made this one movie, Ray D. Tutto. Tutto. Oh, Robin Williams. No, no, Ray D. Tutto. It says right in the credits of the movie. Really? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, so it turns out it's really Robin Williams and his... Agents didn't want Terry Gilliam, quote, pimping his ass to sell his movie. Oh. But it is Robin Williams in full Robin Williams. Yeah. (laughs) They just let him go uh, and then, like, filmed it and, like, used that. (laughs) Yeah, this is Pete Williams, everybody. Yeah. Like, remember, a few years ago, we talked about the film Fern Gully, where Robin Williams had a five-minute part that he recorded 20 hours of improv for. Yeah, it's epic. So, in the end, they he makes it back with Sally and all of his servants. Uh, they end up defeating the Turks with all of their superpowers and um, kill a lot of people. Oh, so many people. And uh, then it's like, oh, it's a story he was telling. Then he gets the people to open the gates... The politician is trying to get the soldiers to shoot them before they can do it, but the soldiers won't shoot. The politician is just like an agent of reality, man. He's just like trying to oppress you with his facts and figures, man. And like, if you just open your mind, you'd see that the real enemy is like not even there. (laughs) It's (laughs) self-doubt. They open the gates. The Turk army is really defeated. And uh, yeah, they're like celebrating there. That's how it all happened. And then the Baron rides off on his horse and then disappears over one of the dunes. Tale as old as time. So was he really there? Was he a ghost? He seems like a ghost of Christmas present. (laughs) (laughs) The most important thing is that he killed a lot of people. Yeah. All right. Well, that was a hell of a summary. We should probably move into the Delve. Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. So guys, this is a weird film to talk about because it is so all over the map and has a lot of weird, whimsical madness going on, but there are a lot of fascinating and sometimes troubling real-world politics going on behind the story. Yeah, it's true. 
for example, uh, casting the Turks as, like, the villains of this war. So, you know, we have this named foe, but the European kind of pastiche country that we have that this war is taking place in doesn't even have a name or a real identity. It's like a hodgepodge of continental Europe with a little bit of English thrown in there just because every film uses the English in one way or another, and then especially a film by, like, Terry Gilliam. There's definitely, like, French and German influence as well. Yeah, there's the continental parts. Now, the novel that this is based on was written in Germany, right? Yes, it was. And when was that written? Well, in 1785, of course. And that's roughly when the story takes place in the movie, too. That's right. Let's just say Europe... And the Middle East have not been friends historically. Yeah. And when it comes to the Ottoman Empire, Europe was often envious of its wealth. Exactly. And during colonial times, they were sort of very large. And this is when Europe was like, hey, remember those hundreds of years where we couldn't do anything about you? Well... (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, like, one of the, like, butts of the jokes is the Ottoman sultan losing all of his wealth to the baron. And, like, when you're watching the movie, it's like, oh, like, this is fun. Like, it's this crazy, whimsical thing. But the way that they're portraying the sultan is, like, he's got this bizarre instrument that's a bunch of slaves in a torture chamber that he, like, tortures. Like, this idea that, like, oh, well, these other non-European countries are guilty of terrible torture and abuse of their people. He's portrayed as being kind of barbaric in his ways. Yeah. Like, callous and violent. (laughs) Which is ironic, considering how intense the slave trade was right up until this point, and during (laughs) this time. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. From Europe. Yeah. However, the Ottomans... Well, had, had they they still enslaved white people at this point. No, that's probably Can you why. Believe it? That's probably Can you why they were, uh, you know, the creator of Baron Munchausen, Rudolf Eric Rasp, might have been, uh, let's say, misrepresenting other cultures in his writings. Ah, uh, yes. Assuming that the film is based like more closely on the book, which I have not actually read myself. There's also something to the colonizers coming in and taking all of the sultan's money. Yes. Since the Ottoman Empire was around for a lot of centuries and was a very old and successful country. However, as Europe rose in power and became sort of a more economic powerhouse between like 15 to 1700, and this is set in the late 1700s, Uh, The Ottoman Empire was decreasing significantly in its economic strength, in its traditions. It was becoming a lot more interactive with the outside world, despite its culture of trying to maintain its sort of traditions. So, uh, a European colonizer waltzing right in as a guest, and then leaving with all their money and starting a war with them... (laughs) Yeah, that's right. The Baron talks about how he did start the war with the Sultan. Yeah. And it's framed in the movie that, like, 
he pulls one over on the Sultan like he's more clever than him. But it's really just because he's withholding information from him uh, for about the people that work for him. Fair enough. He does employ superheroes. And the Sultan doesn't know that. He's got a speedster. He's got a crack <laughs> shot. He's got the literal strongest man in the world. And he has a dwarf with like incredible hearing and superhero like lungs that can intake or expel air at such a rate as to move human bodies like 50 times the strength of superman out here yeah yeah it's crazy and you know it's all just a fun little romp when uh the baron like tricks the sultan into giving him all of his money and then like fights his way out of his kingdom and probably maims a bunch of his men the Baron is also very frivolous with his life. I mean, I respect that. He puts his own life on the line and says the Sultan can take his head if he can't prove that there's a wine that's better than the Sultan's. Oh, you mean he's frivolous with his life? Well, I'm less into that. I thought you meant like, he's like a fun, uh, chill dude, like a libertine. No. Now I understand what you mean. His life and death. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's also kind of a libertine. He is. Yes. He's a wealthy aristocrat who just kind of travels around doing whatever because he can. He has all this expendable wealth that so he doesn't have to worry about anything, doesn't have to work. He's just having a good old time, causing trouble, interjecting himself into people's lives, committing adultery with uh, the wives of gods, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You see, fun stuff. They uh, they go to the the moon, where uh, he sleeps with the. Well, he seduces the king of the moon's wife, the well, queen of the moon. He seduced her years ago, apparently, and she's just now still smitten with him. That's right. Yeah, twenty years pass. And then you know later they go and meet Vulcan, the god of the forge, and, and he seduces Vulcan's wife. Venus, <laughs> I'm noticing a trend. The, the goddess mm-hmm. Venus. Yes. Does he do it again? Well, uh, he does seduce the the actresses as well. Yes, he seduces the actresses who are also people who appear in other parts of the film, like Venus, Uma Thurman's character, yes. is also one of the actresses in Henry Salt's troupe. Yeah, um, also all of the people who play his servants are also the actors who play his servants in the play in the movie. Right, and they don't know that they are, but then later on when the Baron is telling his story, the actors like Eric Idle, who plays, of course... Desmond or Berthold. Berthold is is an actor in the troupe and also... (laughs) And also Berthold, the fastest man in the world. Yeah. So a lot of these people play multiple characters who are the, like, actor troupe version of them playing somebody in the adventures of Baron Munchausen and the characters from his stories when he's recounting them. Right. Now, so this film, along with the movie we've watched before, Time Bandits, for the show that we've discussed before, and a film we've not discussed on the show that I've only seen part of, Brazil, are part of this trilogy of films that terry gilliam made to kind of comment on the absurdity of reality right there are these satirical 
examinations of the world through the eyes of somebody at three different stages of life. Because we've got time bandits where we're kind of following the young child around. Yeah. We've got Brazil where it's a more of a like 30 something man who is like going through these experiences. And then well, finally. Who is like trying to make it in the corporate world. Right. But then reality starts to break down. <laughs> and it's also played by Jonathan Price, who's in this film. Yeah. Who plays the Arrest- corporate. Uh, or- no, he bureaucrat. plays the bureaucrat, the politician, Horatio. Yeah. And then finally, Baron Munchausen is this, like, older main character that we're following who has, like, this life experience and is kind of at what some might consider, like, the twilight years of their life. Yeah. But what I want to know from you guys is, does this film do an adequate job of examining reality through a farcical and satirical lens or does it leave you wanting more i think that it adequately shows that there are different ways of viewing reality and it clearly favors the whimsical and fantastical like mythological view of reality over the scientific and reasonable uh perspective on reality right yeah, science and reason are shown to be the tools of the bureaucratic politician who's trying to control everything and make everything more mundane and normal. That's right. There's a scene early on where one of the soldiers is being presented to the local elected official. A soldier played by Sting. Yes. The musician, not the professional wrestler. Who proved himself to be exceptional by destroying, I think, five of the enemy cannons which had been bombarding the city. Right. Which was a, an incredibly heroic feat, something that is effectively, like, impossible to accomplish. He did it. Yeah, superhuman and, uh, act. Exactly. And for this, he was ordered to be executed. That's right. Yeah. By Horatio Jackson. Horatio is kind of like, oh, we can't have these emotional people running around do, doing these theatrical things what will the common person think who are trying to run normal um like adequate lives yeah the, these this guy hearing stories of this soldier would demoralize the common person who can't dismantle five cannons mm-hmm. exactly instead of inspire people right. it would it would you know it, it shakes up the flow too much. It's a very pessimistic view of reality. It's portrayed as such anyway. Yeah, I was going to say it's pessimistic. It's <laughs> cynical. It's kind of like, oh, like, and, you know, and there's lines that I love in this film. Like when the Baron says, your reality, sir, is lies and balderdash. And I'm proud to say that I have no comprehension of it whatsoever. I'm <laughs> like, it's a beautiful line. Yeah. But... I do, in uh, my older age, and through the lens of, like, where we've come since the time that movies like this were made, keeping in mind that, like, the 80s was a very materialistic time, a very, like, deregulated time, as laws are being dismantled both in the U.S. and in Europe, and especially England, by Thatcher, where this film was being made. And we start to get this commercialism that starts to even more than ever before kind of permeate reality. And then you get this film that is, I believe both very fun 
and also like deeply anti-intellectual and made by this almost auteur director who put the people that were working for him in like tremendous danger. Yeah. And here's the thing. The movie definitely glorifies the whimsy and says, this is better than what's going on. Yes. All the people who are just into like the rules and the traditions doing things the like the classic way. It's like it makes reality bland and magic can give you hope kind of idea. That part I like. And it's stagnating things. And it's just like, it's keeping up systems like the war that are detrimental. Yes. Uh, the Sultan is like, okay, are you, you've come to talk with me to the elected official. Are you ready to surrender? And he goes, no, you're supposed to surrender. And the Sultan goes, what? But we're winning. And the elected official goes, yeah, but we surrendered last time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. And so the Sultan's like, oh, I guess that makes sense. That makes sense. So the writing's very clever. The writing is clever, but like not very deep. Uh, well, it's not very self-critical. Yes. Because we do get the Baron shown as like kind of, you know, he sleeps around, he he tricks people, but like he's still shown as the hero. And really, he never gets in any serious trouble for what he does. He's like a hurricane blowing through your house. <laughs> He'll ruin your marriage, take all your valuables and like hurt you. Yeah, <laughs> maim you possibly. And get yeah. away unscathed with everything you hold dear. And then laughing as he leaves. It's like, whoa. Doesn't even hold on to any of your gold. He just gives it away to somebody else who spends it all on something. And throughout the movie, <laughs> he keeps trying to abandon the plot and not help the people of this town get saved from the attackers. Yeah, it's basically like any time that there's a challenge put in front of him, if he thinks that he's not going to get the glory that he wants, he kind of just gives up. And there's this like fatalism to the character that I find interesting, where he is this very effervescent and fun character most of the time, but then suddenly he's entering into these bouts of depression where he's like, just let me die. Well, I guess... This description is helping me see that this could have been an intentional satirical jab at the aristocracy. Very possibly, yes. Mm -hmm. So it's not only glorifying it. It is glorifying it, to be fair to you, Jack. And I saw that too. Yeah. But there are these moments where it kind of turns it on its head, and I didn't really see that until we were talking about it. Well, so the Baron is in this opportune position where he can afford to be frivolous and fun, and he can kind of choose to be down and dour, whereas people like Sally, the young girl, who's kind of the second main character of this film, yeah, she doesn't have the luxury of being a pessimist. Like, she has to kind of just be a realist to some extent and like push through and the Baron's whimsy doesn't necessarily like give her any kind of like stories about him kind of give her hope, but seeing the reality of him is kind of a bummer for her, yeah. which I think is maybe one of the sharper themes of this film, which is that never meet your heroes. Yeah. Never <laughs> meet your heroes that people you look up to are bound to disappoint you. But then by the end of the movie, the Baron does save the day. Yeah. Which I, I think is the expected ending. I almost wish that he didn't 
I know that that would like totally break everything and like it wouldn't make sense in the context of when this film was made and like when you look at it from a Hollywood perspective of like test audiences would have fucking rioted but I think it would make for a more interesting movie if we were following Sally's arc more. Yeah. What what would have been a little more interesting is if the Baron was like a monkey paw wish. <laughs> right. If they were like, oh, we're under siege. And then this hero shows up that they were doing a play of and they're like, oh, it's Baron Munchausen, right? It's a, it's it's the hero who can stop the Turks. It's right. basically a hero out of a story walks into your life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But as we see, he's a massive fucker. <laughs> and yeah. I wish they were like, oh, are you going to stop the Turks? He's like, oh, I'll stop him. He just goes nuclear instantly. <laughs> destroying Jeez. everything in a 30 mile radius. Seriously. That's a monkey pun. <laughs> I mean, that is more the energy of the Baron. That is the energy. Yeah. He, you know, but at by the end of the movie, he sort of like gets people to ignore the oppressive government and he stops the people who are assaulting the city all by being a problematic guy. Yeah. Pretty much. It's true. <laughs> like his Here's the thing, he's always shown as a hero, his problematic behavior like as the audience you know he's sort of a scoundrel, but there like he's only ever rewarded for it. Yeah, he wants to help the town to prove a point that he's real and kind of deserves to exist. Yes. And that his adventures were real. Yeah, it's very self-gratifying. And it maybe it's because I've been like inundated with this story of like the spectacular individual hero so many times in my life that I'd like to see it broken up more. But I mean, again, I understand that that's not the context of when this film was made. This should be a horror movie. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I would watch the hell out of that. It's like right there anyway. So we've been getting a lot of shows like Invincible and The Boys about just like the superheroes who, you know, you don't feel that comfortable <laughs> that they exist. Yeah. This could easily fit into that sort of genre of just like, oh, it's Baron Munchausen. And then the more time you spend around him, the more you're realizing just like, he's less whimsical and more like uncanny or eldritch. Yeah. Just like, yes, he is like his abilities. Well, he said from the get go that his powers don't make sense and that he defies science and logic. But like, there are some rules that like, you're kind of happy that are there, you know? Yeah. He's like a non Euclidean force of nature. Just like, some interactions they should leave and people should be like, oh, guys, I don't know. Like our intro, like, I don't know if we just left that place better than when we came, you know? <laughs> yeah, maybe, they maybe not. I think they frequently don't. <laughs> Again, no. like there's I, I, <laughs> everything doesn't have to make sense. That's not what I'm saying. But the Baron's like, oh, I caused the war. I also stopped the war. But also we know that the war is being carried on by these bureaucrats and politicians who are just using it to kind of stay in power that means the baron is kind of part of one of these systems and of course he is he's a baron right it means he is a landowner who extracts taxes from the people on his land 
He's one of the original landlords. Cringe. That's cringe. <laughs> he does not have altruistic reasons for helping people like we've established. Exactly. But hey, you know what's much better than sending money to your wealthy baron or landlord who's just going to use it to like live a life of opulence? What is it? It's supporting us, poor artists, on Patreon. What is that? That almost sounds altruistic, really. It really is. What is? <laughs> How do you do that thing? Well, see, here's the deal. People who love supporting artists like us can go to patreon.com slash swords and satire and sign up to send us a little bit of money every month to help support the show. And when you do that, you also get all kinds of awesome benefits befitting of a baron. Oh, shit. That's awesome. What benefits do they get? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> For one, they get bonus episodes like our rewriting histories where we come up with a sequel, a reboot, a spinoff, or a crossover for one of the movies we've watched. They get some awesome duck art that Jack creates. And they get to vote on a movie we watch every month, just like our patrons did with this film this week. That's right. Sometimes there's outtakes episodes. When I get a chance to put them together. <laughs> I know that an outtakes episode is coming when Cass is laughing maniacally at their computer. Yes, it's true. It's true. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> what else is true? <laughs> Nothing, according to this film. That's right. But that's enough about that. Let's get back to the episode. So I thought we could talk a little bit more about Horatio. And what he represents. Okay. Who that, is that? That's, <laughs> that? that's the elected official, the bureaucrat. Right. Boo! <laughs> Wait, he elected? Hmm. He calls himself a public servant, mm. but he's really more like a dictator. Elected by whom? Thank you. Yeah, probably the aristocracy. I didn't vote for him. I'm just having these horrible flashbacks to the film Ghostbusters where the villain of the movie was the EPA. I know. So I wanted to kind of touch base on what you said earlier, Jamie, about this film having an air of anti-intellectualism. Oh, well, that is something that I said earlier. <laughs> it's, wow. I, I picked up on that in a similar way. It It's like he basically represents scientific thought and reason and logic right? right and everything that's antithetical to what the baron stands for magic folklore mythology whimsy it's basically portrayed that science and reason will lie to you right you can't trust it and fantasy and magic can save you or give you hope it works in the movie. It kind of makes sense for the characters that are there. But sure. I think you're right. If you take a step back and think about the messages that they're portraying, it's like, don't trust science, trust tradition and magical ways of thinking. Now, I don't know, Cass. When I get horrendously injured, I don't go to some fancy doctor with a college degree. I just call upon my local landowner 
to go on a magical adventure to fix whatever's wrong with me. They do have a lot of money, so they must be right. Oh, well, that's what the society would have you think. But when it comes to Horatio... This fucking guy. <laughs> they show him using his power for selfish reasons. Yeah. Sure. Unlike the Baron, who uses his power for selfish reasons. <laughs> <laughs> what a contrast. But one ends up controlling people and making reality bland... And one ends up helping people and making reality cool again. Helping some people. Right. Helping a, a, a one side that will yes. love him more. Helping the people of one geographic location. Yeah. <laughs> While horribly injuring people from a different geographic location. You see, one uh, Horatio wants people's money. The Baron wants people's lives. <laughs> 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 True. So I think that if we think about this movie from an outside perspective, it it doesn't really hold. Oh, what? You think that the logic of Baron Munchausen doesn't hold up to it for you? <laughs> Look, I I like a little bit of magic and fantasy in my reality. Sure. Um, and I think like at best that's like the good takeaway you can have is like a little bit of fantasy in your life can make reality happier and more magical. But in the way they portray it in the movie, it's like either or, all or nothing. You can't have... The two types of perspectives can't mesh at all. But in reality, right. people can hold a multitude of perspectives. Even if they seem disparate, like the way we construct meaning, it can all mesh really well for people. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's it's pretty gregarious with the things it's trying to you know send to the audience, but it's not it's not subtle, and it feels like there is almost little to no subtext at all in the film. Yeah, there's some symbolism, but in terms of like yeah, being analytical about its own themes, I think you're right. Yeah, it's just like here's how it is. Hope you like it, fucker. And it's like It's also interesting when you put it up to the lens of the reality of filmmaking, where this movie went like double over budget and was a absolute chaos nightmare for the people involved. Yeah. And like it's important to keep in mind the actress Sarah Polly, who plays Sally, has spoken kind of at length about what a harrowing experience this was. But she never. She also emphasizes, like, I'm not saying don't enjoy the movie, don't have fun with it. Like, please do. It was a wild ride. It was incredibly dangerous. But like, there, there is a fun to it. And I think that like living with those two kind of opposing views is really important for a movie like this, where the messaging is actually really uneven, and I think, yeah, troubling. And that's fine. I'm not taking anything away from the movie for that because it is at the end of the day telling a story yeah but when you look closely at it you're like oh some of this stuff is kind of a bummer when you think about how people have like pushed back against the reality of like scientific advancement and like medical science and stuff like that today like this movie was i'm not saying that baron munchausen caused like any kind of reactionary movements but its worldview kind of supports 
this idea of like not trusting professionals. There's also one more thing that we didn't talk about, and it's the casual misogyny of the film. Um, Intense. <laughs> we're not going anywhere until we dig deep into that. So the way women are portrayed, it's like you give them gifts and pay them a little bit of a compliment and they'll be like just swooning over you. Yeah. They'll be putty in your hands. That's what I was trying to think of. I mean, to be fair to the Baron, he kind of has that effect on a lot of people around him. His servants are kind of like in his thrall, too. Yeah, but not the same way that women are. Fair enough. I'm just thinking of like um, Eric Idle's character when it's like, well, you you left me on the moon and you just expect me to come back and work for you after you mistreated me. And the Baron's like, yes. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, that was a gag for sure. Yeah. But, uh. His servants were people who were rejected by society, right? Seems like They were it, yeah. seen as freaks, and the Baron saw them as exceptional, which is why he saw, like, value in them where no one else did, where when he looks at a woman, he sees value in their beauty and wanting to ha- ejaculate because <laughs> of, they are near. Yeah. Yes. Pretty much. So their value is only in how they can serve his needs and look beautiful for him. Yes, exactly. Yeah. He objectifies the hell out of women. Yes. There's also the point of like any women that are married that we see are being like heavily controlled by their husbands and that's treated as normal and right and like both relationships that we see it's the king and queen of the moon and then Vulcan and Venus the men are violent and like physically controlling and like manipulative to the point where the women are always like doing whatever they can to try to placate them and please them so that they won't meet out violence against them yeah, there's specifically that scene between Vulcan and Venus after Vulcan throws the Baron and his companions into the water. Yeah, where he's like coming at her like he's going to hit her or something. And then she starts trying to seduce him to avoid that. That's right. He's like coming at her enraged. He was just violent to... Guilty and innocent parties. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he is just right up in her face and she is scared. Yeah. Yes, she is living in fear. She is scared standing there, like trying not to show it. Yeah. So he won't do anything. And she like kind of starts seduces him. And that's when his anger goes away because he's infatuated with her again. And yes. when it works, she kind of calms down and feels like she's in control again. But that was a very troubling dynamic. Super troubling. And with the king and queen and the moon in the scene where they're in bed together. And uh, the, so their heads detach for anybody that hasn't seen this film. The king is tickling her feet. Literally. and um. Her head is gone because she's off with the Baron. And he's like, oh, where did it go? You know, I'll help you find it. Then he gets mad because he realizes where her head is. And he gets jealous. And he swings his arm as if to slap her in the face. Yes. But then just goes through empty air. And I was like, whoa, I never really thought about that when I was a kid watching this. That's fucked up. Yeah. (laughs) 
He was like, there's nothing to hit. You have no head. I was like, fuck. God, this is dark. Then he comes after the Baron and his companions with, like, a flying mechanical, like, hippogriff thing that he's going to, like, feed the Baron and the rest to. Like, just going to commit murder with his weird hippogriff and his asparagus spear. Well, yeah, and the whole time the Queen's head is helping them escape in her hair. Uh, Their heads float, too, by the way. Um, well, people understand the biology of moon people. <laughs> um, she seems like, I mean, she's preoccupied because of what's happening to her body, but she's also preoccupied because she's constantly worried, like, I have to get back before he notices I'm gone. Like, she doesn't want him to get mad at her. Obviously, he would hit her. I mean, we've seen. So he tried. So it's like abusive relationships are, are normalized in the film. So with all this being said, where does that leave us with our understanding of a character like Sally, who is, like I said, kind of the second main character of the film? She's a young girl, so she is mercifully, like, beneath the leering gaze of the Baron. But he does kind of have this, he has a bit of a drive to, like, impress her. That's right. Sally is the only normal person in the film. Uh... (laughs) And what I mean by this is, I think the coding is that because she is a child, she is still willing to believe in the whimsy that this is actually Baron Munchausen, who sure. can accomplish the things that he claims he can. He does take her to the moon. Yeah. No one believes that he's the Baron. She does. And she forces him to bring her along, and which is a good thing because he is constantly like, Oh, the city is fine. It the siege isn't even affecting them. Right. Which is a lie. <laughs> yeah. Or just he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. Or wrong. Yeah. yeah. And uh she's the only character who like sees what he's capable of and like the value in him, but does not like fall under the spell of his charms. Cuz there are many times where she disagrees with the Baron. She's like, no, that doesn't make any sense. Right. Or like, you're wrong about this. Her vibe towards him is hard eye roll. Yes, that's true. <laughs> but she still like wants to believe in him. So Sally's a really interesting and complex character. Yes. I think played masterfully, too. Yeah. Agreed. Oh, yes. Uh, actor did a great job. Sarah Polly. That's right. But... Uh, She's too young to sexualize. Thank goodness. And uh, so the Baron doesn't know what to do with her. She kind of annoys him most of the time, but he likes her because she wants to know more about his stories. Yes. She has this, like, thirst for knowledge, and, like, she's always liked the Baron Munchausen stories, it seems like. So the fact that she is, like, a willing audience is really why he deigns to let her follow him so she strokes his ego and she is constantly trying to save the baron death is constantly hounding the baron that's right it's true manifest as a skeletal angel reaper our listeners know what a death looks like (laughs) yeah that's right it's a pretty common icon and uh sally scares it off every time pretty much saving the baron often and sometimes she's the only one that can see it. Yes. 
Now, interesting note in a storyline is that is so much about like, oh, like science and medicine and all this is bullshit. The last form that death comes in to the Baron is that of a doctor. I know. And everybody's like, oh, thank goodness the doctor's here. And Sally knows right away that it's sus. And then she can see the true form as being death. So what we learn here is that Sally has been infected <laughs> with the Baron's like sight. Yeah. Where she sees trouble and problems in all things that are part of the modern world. It's a dangerous point of view to have, to be so mistrustful of everything. It's true, though, that at the time that this book was written, that doctors weren't as effective as they are today. Fair enough. <laughs> I was just thinking about that. Oh, that's true. But these days it doesn't look very good because Baron Munchausen would be like, COVID vaccine, more like schmovid schmaxine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just eat this magical candy and all of your ills will go away. Just take these horse pills. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I always just have a shot of bleach in the morning before I go out. Well, on that note, I think we should probably move into the smithy. Welcome to the Smithy, where we each forge a rating for this movie after we share an epic moment or scene from the film. Cass, do you want to tell us your epic moment or scene and give us a rating from one to ten sabers? But these are like whimsical sabers. Okay. Um, they're used to decapitate a series of men from horseback. So they're whimsical. Nice. I want to highlight the hound that accompanies the Baron. Oh, very whenever nice. he's telling the version the old man version of himself that's telling these stories uh named august and he's always faithfully at the baron's side helping him out he doesn't feature in the stories but he is always there when he's the old man as the storyteller and when the baron is trying to escape in the hot air balloon of women's knickers um August sees that the soldiers are going to try to shoot the Baron down, and he jumps into them. That's right. Saves the Baron's life, maybe. Probably Sally's, too. Uh, and I just want to highlight this because somebody made that dog jump from a high height oh, into no. actors that were holding muskets with bayonets on them, and it collided into those actors. And I just hope that dog was okay. <laughs> there was a lot of unsafe working conditions for animals and humans in this film. Yeah. And humans are just another type of animal. But you know what I mean. I think he was because it looks like the main soldier that he collided into kind of caught him. Well, that's good, I guess. But very unsafe. And uh, August was a good boy. So... Cheers for August. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're all good boys. Yeah. Every dog is a good boy. Yeah. And your rating? Uh, I'm going to give it a 5 out of 10. Oh my god. Um, That 5 is for pure nostalgia. I This is one of my all-time favorite childhood films. 
Now I understand why I'm so conflicted now. <laughs> now I understand why I'm filled with the hate and doubt. <laughs> with self-loathing and doubt. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's fun to watch. And like, if you take the messages like in a good way, they can come across well, but they can also come across as pretty like dated and tone deaf now and um our culture being what it is today i think it's harder to appreciate some of the aspects of this film and so that's why it's gotten a lower rating but i mean five is a, a fine rating it's fair. hard not to watch a movie in the context of where we are now yeah i mean that's just it this is all subjective and so that's just how i felt about it this time watching it totally what about you, Jack? What's your epic moment or scene and your rating from one out of ten sabers? Remember, these sabers are whimsical. I think my epic moment has to be Sally. Ooh. We already sort of touched upon it, but like in a movie where the entire world is madness, she's <laughs> the only character that makes sense. That's fair. So it's sort of like the touchstone. What is it about characters named Sally? Didn't we have the same argument for nightmare before christmas oh something like it oh yeah i liked sally the slice of life character yeah even santa in that movie said she's the only one that makes sense yeah <laughs> and so it's the very same thing here uh <laughs> sally's character was the most like consistent and reasonable and the only one who actually made anything get accomplished in the film yeah if it weren't for her, like you were saying, nothing would have actually come of their adventures. There's a different cut of this movie where there's no Sally and just the Baron comes back to the town and everyone's dead. <laughs> yeah. Well, the Baron would have been dead at the town before the adventure even. Fair enough. Oh, that's yeah, yeah. true. And so, yeah, Sally, definitely the most epic thing. Uh, superpower being being a normal person <laughs> yeah until her vision is clouded in the end yes uh and when it comes to rating this movie yes please do i'm probably gonna have to give it four out of ten whimsical sabers oh my god all right and i'll tell you why the pacing was really not good true it's two hours long effectively if you were gonna put this into a category i'd say it's a comedy and you get the jokes immediately, because like I said, there isn't really subtext. So it's just like, okay, I get the joke, and then the joke lasts another five or ten minutes. <laughs> each of them. And you're like, hmm, I got it in like a few seconds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It really drags when they get back to the beach outside of their town that's being besieged. And they're like all having a crisis of conscience moment and they're just kind of faffing about. Yeah. The moon, the moon sequence was also really long. Yeah. Really, is. really long. The Vulcan sequence was better, but also long. Everything was long. I think they were trying to get the most out of their like kind of celebrity cameos. Yeah. And uh, I, I guess they did that. It felt very uh, quantity over quality. So when it comes to the theme of like whimsy over modernity or whatever, 
there are other films that do it a lot better, namely like Labyrinth, Never Ending Story. Both take that film and just like absolutely ace it. Yeah, right? that's fair. Uh, there are so many movies from the same roughly time period that just like do such a better job. This movie went way over budget as well. And it, you and know, super underperformed and super underperformed from apparently very expensive actors. Uh, like, I, I remember liking this movie pretty well as a kid. I don't think I want to see it again. Oh, brutal. That's, That's why it's a four out of ten. It, it was kind of boring in parts, kind of fun in others, but I don't think I don't think my life would be enhanced by more of it. Wow. You and I both fell asleep after the movie or you had to go home because you were tired. I nodded off for like a few seconds <laughs> once or twice during the movie and then I left afterwards. Ironically, me of all people stayed awake for the whole film. Yeah. Yeah. But what about you, Jamie? What's your epic moment and or feature and rating out of one to ten whimsical sabers? <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked. My epic moment is a scene that I have known about since well before I ever saw this movie. Because I had a friend in high school who adored this film. I think modeled his life after Baron Munchausen. Oh, and no. Would... Whoopsie doopsie. <laughs> <laughs> And it is the scene where they are leaving the moon and they throw a rope of hair from the queen of the moon's head across the crescent moon end to climb down. And the Baron, Sally, and Eric Idle are <laughs> climbing down the rope. Bertold. <laughs> Bertold. He's a real Bertold, if you know what I mean. <laughs> no, Eric Idle is actually, I think, one of the shining moments of this film. Yeah. But So they're climbing down the rope. And they get to the end, and Bertold's like, well, that's it. We got to climb back up. We're at the end of the rope. And the Baron's like, no, just take this piece of the rope and splice it to the bottom, and let's keep going. And Bertold's like, more rope? Like, where do you get more rope? And the Baron's like, well, I cut it from the top. So let's get going. And they're all still holding firmly to this rope. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're firmly holding the rope after that. And Bertold's like, well... That's why he's the Baron, and then they start to fall, and I just think it's a great bit. It's like a Looney Tunes gag, like, in real life, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. you don't start to fall until you realize that there's nothing supporting until you. Until you start to doubt, and it's actually when Sally looks up and starts to doubt that they start falling. Oh, interesting point, yeah. So, I think that's really funny. Um, as far as the rating goes, man... I really did find this movie kind of boring this watch through and I used to love it and quote it all the time and I used to really feel like the messages and themes spoke to me and it just the magic was not there for me and that's a huge bummer in a lot of ways it happens with movies I think that it's totally fair to love something when you're younger and then to let it go maybe later on in life. I don't think it's a bad movie, but I, I think we're really touching on an issue with a lot of Terry Gilliam movies that they are paced terribly. Because while we were watching the movie, I was like, there's like a Mel Brooksy tone to this. Like the way the jokes work are kind of like Brooksian in nature. But a Mel Brooks movie never drags for me. No. Also, the what we were saying is like the messages are really conflicting. Yeah. And in a Mel Brooks movie, like they're so absurd 
that you kind of let them wash over you. And also, oftentimes in a Mel Brooks movie, the message is like, hey, don't be a shitty dickhead. Yeah. And that is definitely not the message in this film. This message is like, question authority, yeah. Okay, fine. Totally okay with that. But like, disavow reality. Like, disavow when somebody who actually knows what they're talking about tells you what is going on. Like, I think it maybe it's just a harder movie to watch in recent years. So with all that being said, I was going to give this movie a six out of 10 to like kind of elevate it in our overall rating. But I think a five out of 10 is probably where it's at because you know me, like I like a, a nice concise movie that gets in and out in like 90 minutes. And when I saw that the movie was two hours, I was already kind of disappointed. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, maybe it's going to be better. Maybe it's going to like keep me and hold on to me and I'll be fine with it. And I wasn't. I was kind of like glancing at my phone a lot during the film. Oh, that's not a good endorsement. <clears throat> no. If you've never seen it before, I think it's worth a watch probably if you can like look past some of its flaws totally just like keep in mind the era that it was made in and the source material is even older yeah i still plan to read the book one of these days yeah but Cass, i've got a question for you yeah what the heck are we talking about next week well we're continuing our theme of problematic media for this year unintentional just, theme yeah it just kind of it's been working out so far. Right. This is another movie with a like troubled production that put people in danger. real harm and danger. Yeah. Uh, we're finally going to heckin' do it. We're going to add our voices to the din. Oh, no. And we're going to start covering the Harry Potter movies. So we're going to start with the first one. I'm confident <laughs> that this is a mistake in the one way or another. The Sorcerer's Apprentice. I mean, the Sorcerer's Stone. Uh, I believe it's called the Philosopher's Stone. Right. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> can't you? Nope. Uh, I'll, I'll wait a week. Okay. Okay, there Phew. you go. <laughs> I am not ready to record another episode right now. <laughs> but hey, Cass, until then, where can people find us if they want to keep up with our show? They could go to our website, swordsandsatire.com. They can also check us out on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and the Corpse of Twitter. Uh, our handle is at Swords and Satire. And Jamie posts some cool memes up there. And well, gives, go on. Gives you some info about what we're covering that week. I do my best. And these days, my best is not very good. So you could always hit us up on there and uh, check out those memes. But Jack, what can folks do if they just don't care about social media? Well, if you like what we've got going here, but, you, you know, you just want a little something extra, we already mentioned our Patreon earlier, Swords in Satire, Patreon.com. That's right. Slash. Even. Swords in Satire. That's right. <laughs> but, you know, not everyone has a few extra late 17th century... French, uh, German, Ger uh, European money to spend. Francs. French marks. Francs. <laughs> That's right. On their Deutsch francs and French marks. That's right. 
If you don't have a few extra doinks to send over <laughs> to your favorite podcast, well, there's another great way you can support the show. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Would it be donks? Yeah, donks. <laughs> oh, well, if you don't have those extra donks, you can support the show by t- just telling people about it. It's true. That sounds so easy. It's so easy. <laughs> <laughs> Word of mouth is basically the only way we advertise our show. And so it's a great help to us if you tell your friends and your family about how much you enjoy listening. That's right. Help us grow. Help us infect more minds. And that's called crowdsourcing. We're growing. <laughs> Fertilize us. <laughs> yeah, wait a minute. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, I think it's probably time for us to sign off. But until next time... Hail Crom! What a fucking movie that was. Baron, mon chanson. He is so great. He's a sophia of the people. Oh, he, uh, he kills a motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> he has sex with those women. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs>